Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining me and thanks for listening in. My guest today is Chris Waddell. Chris is one of the greatest Paralympic athletes of all time. Chris is a five-time Paralympian, Summer and Winter Olympics, and a 13-time medalist. And in 2019, he was inducted into the U.S. Paralympic Hall of Fame. After Chris's athletic career, he had his eyes set on Mount Kilimanjaro and becoming the first paraplegic without being pulled or carried to make it to the top. Chris's journey to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro was documented in the documentary movie One Revolution, which is also a foundation that Chris has started to change the perspective on disability. Chris has gone through many failures and many successes, and I hope you enjoy his journey so far. How are we doing, Chris? Doing great. Thanks, Bobby. Glad to be here. Yeah, super excited to have you on. We were just uh, chatting that I uh, got a chance to watch your uh, documentary One Revolution last night. Absolutely uh, fantastic. Such an amazing uh, journey for you through that whole process. Just, just absolutely incredible. Thank you. No, it was awesome. And it really was a journey or, is, or as they call it in Africa, it's a, a safari, safari, which really means journey. So, gotcha. Yes. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. So we got the uh, Kilimanjaro in the background there. It's perfect. Yes. Yes, exactly. I figured might as well, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So for those out there that don't know, uh, Chris Waddell, 13 time uh, Paralympic medalist. He's in the U.S. Uh, Paralympic Olympic Hall of Fame, uh, stellar career as a winter and summer athlete and then has gone on to uh, nearly uh, unassisted climb Mount Kilimanjaro. We were just talking about that fantastic documentary. Uh, I'm going to have a link in our uh, YouTube description so people can go out to watch that. Uh, highly recommend it. It's absolutely fantastic to watch uh, Chris's kind of journey. And then you also started the One Revolution Foundation. I did, yeah, back in, nine, in 2008, actually. So okay. I've been going for a while. Yeah, yeah no, it's, uh, it seems like it's a great, great cause. And uh, you start to kind of talk about a little bit of uh, name tags and, and things of that nature. So I'm excited to, to talk about that with you, but uh, let's bring it back a little bit to kind of towards getting into the uh, athletic career and kind of coming, overcoming such a, a huge obstacle uh, in your life. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. So I had a skiing accident. So I was a ski racer in college and, you know, racing division one, that kind of thing. So I, I was good enough to know that I wasn't great really is what it comes down to. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I felt like the, I felt like the sport owed me something after I broke my back and, and I, it, it's where we measure ourselves oftentimes, right? I mean, it's, it's, it becomes that critical moment, that defining moment so often in the starting gate and, 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 and it's where we learn so much. So I felt like I'd never reached my potential. I came back into the sport, started mono skiing and, you know, and, and for me, it just was, it was a, it was, it was, it was a way to prove one that I was still whole because skiing for me was a way that I could share with my, a thing that I could share with my friends and my family and all the people who'd been so important to me. Uh, but it was also, it was also that sense of like, I want to prove that I want to prove that I can be successful. Absolutely. So that's, what I came, that's part of what I came back to. And I loved it too. Yeah. The passion is definitely, definitely a big, uh, big part of it. Where, where would you say that that kind of drive uh, came from for you? You know, the drive, it's kind of funny because, because when, I think as I was approaching the end of my career, looking at my college career, that was really the end of my career. And I wanted to figure out who, who I really was. So I felt like the training, like the dry land training before the season, my goal was to push myself to the point where I wanted to quit. Because if I pushed <laughs> myself to the point that I wanted to quit and then went past it, then it was something new. Right. And then, then it was, it was opening up new possibilities. And, and really when I had the accident, it was about problem solving in a lot of ways. It was like, okay, well, this is a far, far bigger challenge than you had planned. Right. But if you want to prove how good you really are, if you want to prove how strong you really are, here's your opportunity to do it. And, and so it was really a problem solving in a lot of ways, uh, the accident. How, how long was that, that problem solving for you? I mean, how long did it kind of take to, to, figure out that path? I mean, I imagine it's got to be incredibly hard kind of in that scenario or for you, is it always just going, what's the next step forward constantly kind of moving, moving towards a goal? It's, it's a, it's a great question and, and funny in some ways in that the year before my accident, I was at a ski race at Burke mountain and a woman named Diana golden showed up and she was in a lot of ways, the face of what was the disabled team at that point. It's now the adaptive team, but the disabled team and 
and, and she was she lost her leg to cancer when she was a kid. Wow. And my first thought was, what's what's this woman doing here? Like, what's this woman with? And I looked at her, and she was in a lot of ways what we all hope to be as athletes. Like, I'm going to fall down, and I'm going to get back up, and I'm going to keep going. And, and I think it's I think that's really you know in a simplistic way that's what it means to be an athlete. It's like I'm going to put it all out there and I'm going to fail sometimes. I mean, you, you know, if, if you're calling this in the arena, right. I mean, I think you're <laughs> sort of in tune with that. I don't want to be one of those cold and timid souls who knew neither victory nor defeat. Right. So, uh, yeah. so, so she really was, that's who she was. And I gained a hero mm-hmm. before I had an accident. And, and in a lot of ways I had a model and it was the, the problem solving was, was the stuff initially in the hospital was everything was changed. I couldn't get out of bed. I went, went in as fit as I'd been. Right. And, and you lose it so quickly, just so, so quickly. I couldn't, I couldn't lift myself. I remember trying to, I went to PT the first time mm-hmm. and I was lying on the mat. They helped me get onto the mat. And the woman said, okay, now this is how you're going to sit up. And, and she kind of put her, her hands in her back pockets and kind of walked her elbows back behind herself so that she could kind of raise herself, almost ratchet herself up. Right. Right. And I went to try to do that and I couldn't budge. It was like I was oh Velcroed to the mat. I could not move at all. So it was starting from ground zero and just, just everything. I mean, just even, even just like, you know, even just, you think like, you should be able to go straight in a wheelchair. Like it was, you know, there were times I remember being so exhausted just because it felt like I was pushing with one hand and holding on with the other hand. It's sort of the rowboat mentality. Right. And, and so there was, it was the problem solving, but it was, uh, that was all I had when I was in the hospital. I couldn't do the physical stuff. All I could do was the mental problem solving. And the question I asked myself is how can I be healthy? And really, how can I be healthy was, how can I look at this problem and find a solution under complete distress? Yeah. You know, despair. And to go, okay, how can I do it? And I think that was really, that was a problem solving part. I was in the hospital for two months. I went back to college. I was going to Middlebury College in Vermont. Went back to, went back to an almost 200-year-old school built mostly out of granite on the top of the hill in Vermont in the middle of February in a wheelchair, you know, after losing 50 pounds, oh, you know, goodness. just That's, thinking, yeah. okay, that was crazy. But, uh, but it was really, you know, it really was the problem solving all the way along. I mean, it was just, I, I went to a place called Shake Leg after, uh, which was a secondary rehabilitation place, a holistic healing center. Okay. And I went there after the first after my semester back at school to figure out what this life in a wheelchair was like yeah and and that was i went in there and i thought i'm coming in rolling and i'm walking out and it was just every day was okay i don't know what it is um, but there's going to be something there's going to be that breakthrough and it was the most exciting part of my life in a lot of ways really yeah because every day had the potential to be that day okay it's kind of like when you're an athlete when yeah when you start learning something new and you're like, Oh, Oh, this is great. Like yeah, the light bulb starts to go so off better. Yeah. yeah. And you're like, okay, I want to get back there and, and something new and great is going to happen. And, and it was really, you know, sort of paradoxically, that's the way it happened when you think this is the worst thing that could have happened to you. Mm-hmm. But yet you're looking at it like this is, this, this is my greatest opportunity and, and to figure out who I am, right. To earn my way into being healthy. Yeah, I mean, you you absolutely, uh, as the way you look at it, capitalize on that opportunity to, I mean, just, I was, I was looking at it like 32 national, 32 time national champion and, you know, a Hall of Fame Olympic career. Uh, it's just an unbelievable, unbelievable career. And, and what is, so how did that process, I mean, you know, it sounds like it's, you have those little goals you kind of start to create every day of, of going back to that that facility and, and start getting that light bulb and you start to get a little bit of momentum. And then, and then where, where does it go from there? Where it went from there. So I went to shake leg for the summer and finally got stronger. Right. And started, right. started getting, how, how difficult is that? Is that process to kind of build that, that upper body strength? Cause I mean, watching the documentary, I, the, one of the things was like, how many calories is he burning a day? Just upper, I mean, super jacked obviously. And just, it, it was ab- incredible. <laughs> 
they were telling me I have no idea how many calories I was burning other than what my guide was saying is that he thought I was burning about 10,000 a day. Because especially when you're at altitude and you're cold and you burn more calories. I put on, I came back and I had to go to a black tie event. Okay. And I put on my tuxedo mm -hmm. and I looked like a little kid wearing my <laughs> father's tuxedo. Like it just didn't fit at all. I was so skinny from, and it didn't last long, obviously. But actually the, the jacked part is kind of funny because I had to do, I got some compression clothing and I had to do some measurements of my arms and my arms were actually an inch smaller in circumference really? than they were when I was racing wheelchairs wow. because that is a more anaerobic, even though it's an aerobic thing, it's really more power oriented one gear. Mm -hmm. Whereas climbing the mountain, I was going for nine or 10 hours a day yeah. and you just have to turn yourself into an engine and just keep pedaling, pedaling, pedaling yeah. in order to, in order to get up there. And so, so it's just, it's about RPMs because if you go too hard, then those muscles just never come back. They, they just, just, yeah, you just get fried. Uh, but yeah, the, so the process was I was at Shake Leg, I got stronger. I went back to school and my coach called me up and he said, hey, come on down to the ski room. I, I want to talk to you about something. And he had been out at Mount Hood that summer. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah, he, he had been out, out at Mount Hood that summer and he'd seen the U.S. disabled ski team skiing, you know, because it's like it's just all lanes out there. It's all wide open and you see yep. everybody. And, and actually one of his former athletes – at, at UVM when he was coaching at UVM was coaching the team. And so he saw these guys in mono skis and he's like, you should do this. We, I want to, we'll, we'll buy you, we'll buy you one of these things. We want you to be on the team. That's awesome. And with that, I said, okay, this sounds great. <laughs> I, I'd love to do it. And uh, yeah, I had no idea that I wouldn't know anything, but. <laughs> I mean, it looks like one of the most difficult and, you know, being an athlete and it looks like, one of the most impressive things, uh, how, you know, you're going through that downhill and not skipping a beat, just barreling down the hill. I mean, it gives me goosebumps just as I'm talking about it. And it's just I, the, such an impressive, I mean, how hard is it to, to create and build that skill? It is starting over from zero. Just completely starting over. Yeah. Where you, yeah. where you sort of like mentally, you know what you're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. But physically, you have absolutely no muscle memory. So everything is brand new. And the analogy for me in some ways, it's like, it's like, do you, do you mind one second? About, my dog is actually at the door. She's starting to bark. <laughs> no worries. You're fine. Okay. I'll be back one second. Totally fine. Yeah. Take your time. So for uh, folks out there, you know, um, Chris has just had uh, – such an incredible journey. Let me read you off some of these uh, statistics there. Uh, Two-time uh, Paralympic bronze medalist. He got a silver at the Sydney Summer Games. Uh, uh, multiple uh, five-time uh, Paralympic gold medalist. Uh, 13 medals in total. Uh, 2009, he was inducted into the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame. And then uh, just recently this past year, 2019, to the U.S. Uh, Olympic Hall of Fame. Is the dog okay? She's okay. She's okay. She's just insistent. She runs the show. Really, is what it comes <laughs> no down to. And she That's didn't fine. want to be outside. So, uh, no, we're good. And, and so, uh, no, the, the analogy, so like when I first started mono skiing, it felt like, uh, it felt like, it felt like uh, basically like, like holding my breath, like trying to translate into a foreign language while holding my breath underwater. Like there was this sense of the holding the breath. It was like this sense of immediacy of like, oh, there is stuff that I have to do right now, but I don't know how to do it. And, and it's all this crazy translation of just, just of space. And mm -hmm. that's the weird part of like you get off the lift and you just kind of like slide to a stop and it's no big deal and you don't even think right. about it. Yeah. I had to think myself through every inch of sliding to a stop before I could start to actually do the run. Right. It was starting so far from, from the beginning. And, but I was lucky. And, and I think as an athlete, you're lucky in that, you know, the feeling right. that you're shooting for. Yeah. It took of me course. two years, I think, to find that. Two well, years. it seems like with, with your kind of personality as well, that you just, you just continue and, and you talk about that problem solving, right? The, so each day on the Hill becomes that new problem that you're going to solve. 
it, it does. It does. And there were many that I didn't. Uh, so yeah, that I didn't anticipate. So, mm-hmm. so we had a tiny little ski area at the Middlebury Snowball was, I mean, it's not a tiny little ski area, but it's, but it's a, you know, it's a family kind of ski right. area there. And, and I did lots of crazy things unintentionally. Like one time I slid onto a double chairlift and the slats of my monoski were the same width. We're, we're far enough apart as this little buckle on the front of, of the chair, old chair, old double okay. chair, slid onto it. And I went to get off at the top and the whole chair, the whole seat came off behind me and I'm attached <sighs> and I have, I have no idea how or why I'm attached. All yeah. I know is that I'm upside down and we're getting higher and higher oh. as we're going along. You know? yes. And I'm like, oh no, this is gonna end badly. And it seemed like all of the guys, they eventually stopped it. And all of the guys who worked there pretty much showed up and pushed me back up onto the thing and said, don't do that again. I'm like, and no, I don't <laughs> whatsoever to do that. You know, this is the, but, uh, but yeah, so that was it. But I stayed part of the team, which was a really, a really cool thing. And I'm trying to think if uh, my brother followed me at Middlebury and I don't know if he was there that first year if he was there the second year I think he was there the second year okay that I skied in a mono ski so was, so I'd just go out and I'd train with them and they let me train with them and I really wasn't very good for a long long time <laughs> well you got to keep that problem building up right uh, problem solving and then so when did you start to when did that start to change you know Funny enough, it started to a certain extent because there is some muscle memory just in how we carry ourselves at an event, right? Mm -hmm. So I went to my first race, I think like two weeks after I started. And and it was really, it was kind of like a NASTAR. It wasn't anything, it wasn't anything really, really, but it was faster than I'd ever gone. Okay. And and it was a national qualifier and there were very few national qualifiers in the area. And I thought, okay, well, I want to qualify for nationals because I'll hopefully be better by the end of the season than I am at the beginning of the season. And and I sinked in. I just, I became a racer again. And yeah. and the first run I went out there and I just, I just did what I was supposed to do. I didn't have the, hey, you're not good enough to do this. You're totally out of control. <laughs> yeah. And I probably was totally out of control, but things luckily didn't go badly. So it didn't look like I, I didn't know for sure that I was out of control. I hit one little bump at the bottom and that, that could have been it, but I, <laughs> I, I made it past it. Uh, but it really took, I skied all that year. I actually made it to nationals. Uh, I skied that summer in New Zealand and I got invited to a camp with the U.S. team in November out at Keystone. Okay. And that was, that was where it clicked for me. Mm-hmm. was finally so it was three four solid months and i i made some turns and went oh this is what it's all about but it still took really until so that, that was what that was um yeah it took it took i made the team i think that following not that following year but the next year and then skied my first Paralympics after that and I still wasn't good it was the year afterwards that I finally became okay. good so it was like four years into it four years into it it really that's, was that's it was pretty quick for a lot of people though a lot of people spend a lot of time doing something and they definitely don't get that good that quickly so well <laughs> yes but, but I'd also you know I had raced for 15 years prior to that yeah so there was a lot of stuff that I knew sure I just, there was a lot of stuff that I just didn't know how to do I knew right. what I was trying to do right how much would you say that that kind of uh, competitive mindset really kind of helped in, in your approach to, to succeed? Like when you got into the gate and you were able to push through, how, how much did that kind of, because it sounds like it made a difference. Like even your first kind of push out of the start, it sounds like it was definitely a, a difference maker for you. That was a difference maker, but I think going through, going through the accident and the recovery mm-hmm. in a lot of ways was a bigger difference maker. I remember one night when I was in the hospital and it was basically like the first time that I was, that I was really alone. I'd had friends and family. My mother had slept in the chair next to my bed for like the first week or 10 days or whatever. Yeah. So she was always there. And I think I was alone. And I remember thinking like, this is as close to death as I've ever come like without actually dying. Yeah. Right. Like, the, mm-hmm. and like, if this is as bad as it can get, then I'm never going to be intimidated again. Mm-hmm. And I think fear is one of those things that sticks in front of us. Right. That is, that is, yeah. the guard, it guards the threshold between where we are and where we want to go. Absolutely. And, and, and really that was, that was more of a, that shaped me more 
than, than what I had done competitively. I think there was a competitive part and I knew, I knew how to do the work, mm-hmm. but the performance part of it really came from, from saying, Hey, you've already seen the worst. Like mm-hmm. just, just go ahead and do what you need to do. If you're going to be scared, it's going to detract from your, from your performance. And how, so, how interesting of a process or kind of, kind of a, a place is that to be in, in that po- point of time? Cause I mean, I'm, trying to trying to put myself in, in those shoes and it's such a difficult you know I remember going through and having like a pity party when I tore my ACL and I'm going through and you know I'm going through the rehab and I'm trying to fire my leg and my leg's not responding and I'm like that you know this is just I, I so tr- tr- try to if you can try to describe I me mean, I can't even imagine yeah I think that that part of it is that when things are when things are really really bad mm-hmm. you don't have much of a choice Things right. become, things okay. really become black and white. And I think that's where we have to learn about ourselves from those moments. Because, because when, when things aren't really all that bad, when things are inconvenient, I mean, not to call a torn ACL an inconvenience, yes. but you know, it's not really, yeah. it's not life no, no, or no. death, really, Great. right? Of course. In some yeah. ways. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think that that's, that's, we have to learn from those, those black and white times in our lives to say, okay, I'm really good. At getting in my own way. <laughs> I like I'm, that. Yeah, it's no, it's it, good. It's true. <laughs> getting frustrated and quitting, you know, and in some ways it's kind of like, and I know I've done this too, where you blow out of a course and you're like, oh, you know, and you're swearing in this and that. And, and in so many ways, it's like, you're doing that for everybody else around you, right? Like, right. That, like no, no, I'm really better than this. <laughs> I just, you know, so don't pay any attention to that. This isn't the way it's supposed to go. I'm actually really good. And I think that's, that's, that's the, that's the hard part. That's the human part is trying to figure out how, how we can maintain that, that sense of, I call it like winning the moment. And, okay. and it's a, uh, it, it's a, it's a sense of, um, of, uh, yeah, of, of, of optimism, you know, of, of okay. like, maintaining a sense of, sense of optimism in, in these difficult times and re- recognizing that that environment that I create is the one that allows me to heal. Okay. Yeah. I really like the w- winning the moment. Uh, I like that a lot. Kind of keeping that optimism going and absolutely. So would you say those are, you know, kind of uh, winning that moment, keeping some of that optimism going forward really kind of helped uh, keep, keep, that successful drive going for you? I think it kept the successful drive going, but it also, it kept me, it kept me healthy. Kept you healthy. And I think one of the things that's really easy for us as, as athletes, oftentimes we want to, we think that we're going to succeed almost in spite of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Like we talk to ourselves worse than we'd talk to anybody else. Right. You know, you'd never say some of the stuff to somebody else that you say to yourself, right? Absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't be very happy with you. <laughs> yeah, of course. If, if you did, and, and sometimes it's, it's straining and struggling that we, we feel like we're demonstrating that we are, that, 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 we're, that, that we're really trying, you know? And, and the analogy for me in some ways is like, it's the difference between like a hundred meter sprinter, like a Usain Bolt. Mm-hmm. sprinting versus like the kid in little league. Right. Right. And, and uh-huh. if you do it in slow motion and you see, you see like Usain Bolt's like, like face, like bouncing yeah. <laughs> up and down, like yep. everything's relaxed. That is not going into making him go faster. Right. Whereas the little league kid is there like head, like pointed to, toward the <laughs> sky, like exactly. you know, just grinding and teeth are grinding and everything and doing whatever. And, and basically like digging a hole in the ground, really not, not actually going anywhere. Yeah. And, and I think that that's the problem for us as athletes is that we get this sense of like, of, of we get, we get in our own ways. We, we don't allow it. We don't allow ourselves to perform at the best level really. Right. So, so that to me is kind of that, that sense of winning the moment and how can I, how can I allow myself to create, how can I allow myself to have fun mm-hmm. because it can turn into work. How did you allow yourself to have fun? I think that, that I think that it really was being conscious of it, of it being fun mm-hmm. and saying, look, when I have fun is when, when I am, when I'm performing at my best 
And some of it is, is, is tricks as well. So this might not sound like fun necessarily, but, but it's to get out of my own head. So I'd try to convince myself before I started that I'd already made a mistake, that I had nothing to lose. <laughs> that's that's it. Before I go through the starting, starting wand, you know, that's it. I've already, yeah. I've already made a mistake. I've already, I've already blown it. And so it frees me up. Right. That's a, that's a good mentality. Would you say, do you use that as well? Like when you're going into some of your public speaking and stuff like that, because I know that's one of people's uh, biggest fears is going out and standing in front of a big crowd and being able to kind of just, just talk. It's amazing how it can be difficult for some people. I've luckily for me, it's not too bad. I don't have too many issues with it, but it's funny that, you know, I definitely know a lot of friends and stuff like that that are like, I don't want to, don't, don't make me talk. And it's in front of like 10 people, let alone, you know, <laughs> some of those speaking engagements you've done. Oh, it's funny because, because sometimes 10 people is worse than like 10,000. <laughs> 10,000 becomes an amorphous group and, and it's yep. almost like they are more comfortable, but 10 sometimes is more intimate and can be, can be more challenging, I think. But uh, speaking, yeah, because it's what, it's like 95% of people rank, you know, public speaking worse than death yeah at a death or something it's crazy <laughs> it's like scarier than death you're like well you're not you're probably not gonna die up there so yeah. it should, be, should be below but anyway um I, I try to i try one of the things i try to do when i speak is to really say something when i start there are a lot of people who go out there and they and they kind of sort of warm up and ramp up mm-hmm. to it and, and for me it's like no let's say something right now like let's let's put a stake in the ground and and let's prove the stake. Let's 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 go there. So so then I have to catch up. And for me, it's similar to like when I was racing downhill, where downhill scared me, especially downhill skiing, downhill on mono skiing. I don't have I don't have like the torso muscles. I really have like the stomach muscles below my sternum and corresponding on my back. So I so I can't really like sit up. And so when I hit a jump in whatever position I'm in, that's how I'm going. And it's sort of like cross your fingers and hope for the best. But, but I tried to convince myself in that, that my race was to the first gate, that if I could be completely committed to the first gate, that, that, that I'd done something. And the thing that's weird is that when you do that, it generally, it slows down. When you try to go faster, it slows down. Whereas if you think, Oh no, Oh no. Okay. Like this is already seeming too fast. Mm-hmm. Then, then you're in big trouble. Right. And so that's, I try to do the same thing in speaking of like, okay, let's go hit it hard. Let's go hit it hard right in the beginning. And then, then we're good. Then we're, then we're just catching up and then things will slow down and it'll make sense. But it's that commitment right at the beginning. Got to be committed. Got to yes. be committed either all the yep. way in or not. Right. Yeah. So, um, one of the things is, is I went on to, to watch the documentary One, One Revolution and, and it goes through and uh, you get to see some of that fantastic ski career you had. I mean, uh, 94, you, you, you dominated. You were gold all the way across the board. It was uh, fantastic. What, what is that? So what is those, those Olympic experiences uh, have meant to you kind of, kind of where you've been and then you get to those Olympic moments? You know, it's, it's proving yourself on the greatest stage, right? And that's what you hope for. You hope, you hope to earn your way. Uh, you know, it's a lifetime of sacrifice for the hope of a moment of brilliance. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and you get there and go, okay, can I perform? Can I perform the way that I've prepared? And Lillehammer in 94 was the big one for me because Lillehammer, I had said early on in my career that I want to be the fastest mono skier in the world. And there were three classes of mono skiers then. Okay. And, and I was in the most disabled of the three. So, so when you look at it, it's kind of like, you know, those with more muscles should be faster. Those who can sort of, you know, there were guys who stood up and, and sat down into their ski and, and went, you know, and one guy who at one point I was going, pushing my wheelchair through deep snow. And he asked me if he could help me, if he could give me a push along the way, cause he was walking behind me. And, and I said, I want to be the fastest. And then, and in the downhill in Lillehammer, I beat, I beat everybody. I beat all the, all the mono skiers in the world. And to me, that's, that was such a big moment because it was, it was about skiing ability. Mm-hmm. It was about taking that knowledge. And you know, we all love the underdog, right? I mean, it's, it's hard yeah. for us to be the underdog. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not that we want to be the underdog, but you know, for playing in the backyard, we're mm-hmm. willing to be the underdog, right? 
Yeah. But, but it's hard to take that mentality forward. And, and I really was the underdog. And so, so that experience was, was, was really the defining experience because, because I felt like people had to see me for who I was. They had to see me as, as a great athlete, which is, which is ultimately what I was trying to do. And that's each games was different. I mean, I did seven games four winter, three summer. So yeah, it was, yeah. What, what was that transition like into the, into the summer games? Well, I'd always run, you know, uh-huh. so you ran as a, as an athlete. This is, this is what you do. And I gained heroes. I seem to gain heroes everywhere. I don't know about some people seem to, it's funny. We did a, a, who's your hero tour. I rode my bike from Seattle down to San Diego and we were asking people who their hero was. And people couldn't really give you a hero. And I was surprised because I seemed to pick up heroes, but one of my heroes was this guy named Jim Martinson who okay. built the very first mono ski that I used. He had lost his legs in Vietnam, built a racing wheelchair to, because he was, he was racing. And, and I mean, they went from like the 50 pound stainless steel hospital chairs to modifying those. And he was working at an HVAC uh, company. Okay. Know? Yeah. And, and built a, built his own wheelchair, won the Boston marathon with it. In 86, I think it was, he won the Boston Marathon. And, and people said, hey, here, you know, will you build me a chair? And skiing had been a huge part of his life. He'd shared it. He had, I think he has three brothers, three or four bro- brothers, and skiing had been a huge part of their lives. And he wanted to share it with his kids. He said, oh, I'll build this thing. And then they'll, you know, they'll, they'll get too good, you know, but I'll at least be able to share that time with them. Sure. You know, and then they'll eventually leave me. And I, they can't, like, he's 74. They still, they still can't leave him. That's like awesome. 10 years ago, maybe it was 10 years ago, he called me up and said, hey, can you get me into the X Games for the Mono Skier X? You know, yeah. like 65-year-old guy in the, in the X Games. And, and he ended up crashing, unfortunately, in the, in the, uh, in the training. Okay. But I think he would have had a chance to win it. I mean, I really wow. do think he would have had a chance to win it, which was so cool. But, uh, but he was one of my heroes. And, and so I went out to get a racing wheelchair built in Seattle after my first winter of skiing in a mono ski, because if I wanted to be the best in the world, I had to train to be the best in the world. Right. So I had to do that summer training and this was going to be my summer training. And, and so I went out with him and actually skied with him. And he was the first one that I had seen who could really ski Mm -hmm. in a mono ski. Like he, he got off the lift and he put it on edge and his, his bucket is almost right on the snow. And I was like, I think I exhaled for the first time like oh okay like you can do this because skiing such an aesthetic sport right i mean it's a competitive sport but it's so beautiful yeah too like when you do it well i mean it's like it's like ballet in some ways like when you do it really well and and i watched him and i was like oh okay this can be the same i can't do it right now but it can be the same and so that was that was the start of it and he was a guy who competed in both winter and summer games and and i think that really pushed i wanted to be like him Okay. So, yeah, I mean, speak, speak a little bit to that of, of some of those other people that, uh, you know, you talk about some of those heroes that you've kind of picked up along the way. Who are some of those inspirations, uh, not only Jim, but, but other people that really kind of help, helped you succeed or at least drive you? Yeah. I mean, some of that, so, so Jim and Diana were, were huge, but some of them were also were contemporaries, were people like uh, Sarah Will, who was one of my teammates, uh, she was like five one ninety pounds and beat almost all of the men in the world. Wow! Ski, yeah. You know, and I was like, "Wow, like that's that's amazing." And I'm really not happy that she's beating me. Uh, <laughs> it's not cool. And, uh, so, and we actually we dated at one point, and she was beating me when we first started dating. So I had to get faster. <laughs> I <just laughs> And she kept getting faster. So that was a problem. But, uh, but so she was definitely one and she was just, she was so good at what she did. And so, and so smooth and just, it was just, it was absolutely beautiful. So watching her, I, I raced wheelchairs, a couple of guys there, uh, uh, Scott Hollenbeck, uh, Jeff Adams were guys that I raced with. Scott was an American guy who just was, uh, he was just, he was such a, such a thinking man's racer and, had, ever, had, had figured out so many of the angles. It was great to learn from him. Uh, Jeff was probably like the cockiest guy I've ever met. I felt so much cockier when I was around him and I always seemed to race better. When I was with him, I was like, okay, I've got to, I need to be more cocky like him. Uh, 
<laughs> yeah, which is great. I don't think he'd be upset with me saying that. I think it's. Uh, <laughs> I think he knew no, that. you got to have that confidence. Yeah, it sure. really was. But looking at some of those people and just looking at looking at people who continued to continue to push themselves, continued to push the sport. I think that mm-hmm. was really. Those were yeah. I just kept getting gaining heroes along the way. Awesome. No, that's that's. It's, it's, it's interesting because there are some people there that, uh, that I've talked to, you know, had on the podcast and, and, uh, those inspirations can kind of come from all over the map, you know, uh, for people to say mom and dad, and then it's been a potential business partner or, you know, a certain coach or something like that, that's kind of helped, uh, drive them along the way. And I think being able to kind of have those heroes or those, those idols to kind of look up to and, and they change, right. Cause, cause we all change, we go through different moments and, well, they're still oh, yeah. our hero. I mean, it kind of just rotates through, right? I mean, I remember, especially starting out for me, it was always Johnny Mosley in, in yeah. 98. And then after that, Jeremy Bloom and Travis Cabral. And they, you know, it's just kind of uh, Federer, you know, he, I hope he never retires because that's, that's <laughs> my, you know, Federer is my guy, Michael Jordan. You know, there's just those guys that you look up to. You have some of those, uh, those pillars that uh, I think it's interesting when you kind of talk to those people that don't kind of have those heroes as you talk about when you're doing that ride from uh, – Seattle, San Francisco. I feel like that's. You're, I feel like it. It can only help. It's not going to hurt if you have something to kind of look up to. One of those role models, right? Well, it makes it seem possible. I think sometimes too, right? That mm-hmm. that you look at these heroes and go, "Wow, like they're doing what I hope to do." So obviously, that's got to be possible. And right. then, and then, you know, and I, and I think, you know, really, I think we come into sport thinking that we want to do something that nobody dreamed of, you know, or nobody thought was possible. I mean, that's, that's the ultimate goal, right? Like, Mm -hmm. like you don't want to just win. You don't want to just do what somebody else has done. You want to like push it beyond wherever it was. And, and certainly my, my same for me with my parents were, were huge heroes and, and my younger brother who, who was a ski racer as well. Uh, You know, so it's, uh, but I think we continually need that. We need those people. And, and I look at some of these people now it just, just in my sport. I mean, I've, I'm actually starting, starting a, a, starting a podcast as well and, and starting a television show that's oh, called cool. Living It with Chris Waddell. And I'm looking at some of these people who are doing some things that I just think are absolutely amazing. And I look at like this guy, uh, Aaron Fotheringham, who, uh, who's, who's like the, what does he call himself? I think he's the godfather of, uh, of the skate park, of the, of the wheelchair in the skate park. He's done like double backflips and a front flip over like a 50 foot gap jump. And, you know, just does these things that you go, it's like, it just kind of watching him bends your sense of reality. And so he's sort of like a, he's like a dolly, you know, like a dolly (laughs) painting. He's turned the world into a dolly painting where you go, Whoa, like you've just totally warped my world. And that's really cool. And, and I think that seeing that creativity and the, and the willingness to kind of plug along is, is something that, I think we all need, and, and as we move out of sport and we move into business or we move into whatever else it is, it's like, yeah, we need, we don't always believe in it just based on ourselves. Right. No, definitely. You, you definitely need that uh, supporting cast. You know, you definitely start to, to talk about that in the documentary as well, right? Like you're, oh, yeah. you're on your mission there and then you, you kind of have this epiphany towards the end of all the people there helping you kind of achieve such, such an incredible goal. Uh, it's definitely definitely quite amazing. And so going into uh, one thing that um, really thought was super interesting was the 2002 and going in and getting to uh, light, light the torch. Yeah. Lighting the cauldron. I, I did that. And actually I got to do it because I did a fair amount of work with the organizing committee. Okay. And so, so actually the night before the Olympics, I got to light the cauldron at the city and county building. So this was really when the flame arrived in yeah. town and it was 60,000 people. And they tell you, you know, they tell you, you know, don't go too fast. You have like your, <laughs> you know, whatever it is, you're like 200 meters or whatever, like don't go too fast. And everybody's cheering for you and you, it's hard not to go too fast. And I shared the bus with uh, Steve Mayer, Christy Yamaguchi, John Stockton. We were the last four. Okay. And I actually got to light the cauldron and then uh, Prince Albert was on our bus as well. And, you know, so that's kind of the cool, like that's, that's inside the velvet ropes kind of thing. And then lighting the cauldron for the Paralympics being up there in front of the stadium. And it was funny because they announced me and I heard it and I raised the, raised the, uh, the torch 
and, uh, <laughs> and it seemed like nobody, nobody clapped. And I went, huh. And I think it was, I think it was really like a, like a sound thing where, where I heard it before they heard it or something. It was yeah. really Cause then they started clapping and it might've just been momentary, but right. I was like, okay. <laughs> All right. That's cool. I'm still going to light it, you know, but yeah, that's pretty, pretty that's pretty stuff. funny. Yeah, yeah. No, when, uh, the next year they, uh, in 2003, they actually held, uh, they called it the Utah Moscow games. And essentially it was like the top three or four uh, kids under the age of 18 or 19 in Utah and all the same winter disciplines uh, against uh, kids from Moscow. And we ended up uh, competing in that and going through and we did the opening ceremonies, closing ceremonies, all those different events. And that was one of those things because when the Olympics were here in 2002, I went to some of the events, but I didn't get to go to those, those ceremonies, you know, and that was one of those things that really kind of, stuck with me was when they go through and they light the cauldron and just uh such such like a magical moment so to be able to light that cauldron uh it's a pretty great story that you got on top of it that you don't think anyone's even clapping for you while you're doing it so that's pretty good (laughs) it's pretty wild i mean because that that goes all the way back into history right i mean it's coming from greece it's this this flame that they've that they've continued you know that they've maintained since since the start of the modern olympics i believe right in 1896 and so so you're for that brief moment you're the custodian of the flame of this whole embodiment of the sport and hopes and dreams and you know all of that stuff and that that is that is really cool and the pop and circumstance in a lot of ways is you're competing against a lot of the same people Mm -hmm. that you've competed against before right but the pop and circumstance really is something that you you know, that you, that you earn, you earn yeah. your way into it. And that's, that's the cool part is you're like, okay, I'm here. And, and yeah, it's a little hard as an athlete though, too, because you're, you're there and you're like, wow, this is amazing. And for a moment, it's kind of like being a spectator. Yeah. And then you're like, okay, now I have to go back to work. Yeah. I'm, I'm here is, to win. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. Let's, let's do what we were supposed to do. So uh, kind of moving, moving forward a little bit, when did, when did Kilimanjaro kind of come on to, to your radar or something that you wanted to do once you kind of finished, finished up your, your athletic career? It's, uh, so it's funny. So, so you might have experienced the same thing. I, it was actually it was more difficult for me to retire from competitive sport than it was to break my back because I, I lost a lot of my identity. I suddenly became that guy in the wheelchair. I, my, my resume was something that was entirely separate from me. I was no longer, you know, world champion or this or that or whatever. It was like, okay, you're just an ordinary person. And how are you going to, how are you going to move forward? And I, it was really, when I was in the hospital, when I was leaving the hospital, the doctor didn't want me to leave because I hadn't been depressed. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I became depressed after I'd proven that I could be the best in the world at what I was doing. And uh, that was that was a challenge. I was out out in Round Valley one day riding my off road hand cycle, mm-hmm. and I was riding down the hill after a good climb, and and thought literally just like tapped me on the shoulder. I mean, well, I guess it wouldn't be literally; it'd be figuratively. But uh, <laughs> tap, tapped me on the shoulder, and I was like, "Where did that idea come from?" It's like you should climb Kilimanjaro, and I, but it was the metaphor of of climbing a mountain. We're all climbing a mountain, right? And so. Right. So it made a lot of sense. The Paralympics, when I was competing, we really weren't on television all that much. Mm-hmm. And so since we weren't on television, nobody really got a chance to see it. And I feel like if you don't get a chance to tell the story, it didn't happen. Right. So, so Kilimanjaro, I, it, it really was one idea. And I thought, okay, all right, let's do this and, and let's tell the story. Let's, let's make it happen. Who, who was kind of a part of, 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 creating that with you i mean how how long did that production take to kind of get together and and what was kind of the 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 training involved in in all that because i mean it seems you can only be so prepared and then you know as you see in the documentary then you're at the mountain it's like all right let's see if this wench is gonna work we haven't even really tested it for like 10 15 feet let's see what happens i know i know <laughs> if there was something we, we i would do over it would be the winch that's for sure uh so uh yeah I think preparing to climb a mountain in a lot of ways is everything that's ever gone wrong in your life. You know, mm-hmm. things go wrong and you go, okay, well, I survived that. I figured out a way 
out of that thing that went wrong. And, and because there, there, invariably there will be something that you hadn't prepared for. Right. And you have to figure out how do I, how do I make this work? So there was that part of it. Uh, the, the training, there were, there were a lot of people who were involved and, and really my director was probably the first person, Amanda Stoddard was my director who, who in a lot of ways we had had a discussion. We, we, I met her in acting class. We were taking acting classes down at, uh, down at Salt Lake Community College. And, and, and we went out for a beer afterwards, a bunch of us, but this night it was just like, I think there were just three of us. And she had said something about, you know, you need to be in front of the camera and, and, and I guess I kind of, you know, held on to that and thought, okay. And so I called her up and said, Hey, look, this is what I'm thinking about doing. Do you want to be involved? And she was like, Oh, you took that seriously. And I was like, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> so. We're trying to make it work here now. Yeah. And, uh, and so, uh, so she was involved. We started doing some filming, like a little promo film in November ish of, of, uh, of 2007. Mm-hmm. And, and then did a, did a scouting trip in June of 2008 and then did the actual climb in September of 2009. And the, the training really, my guide was a guy named Dave Penny and he, okay. he's this sort of yep. endurance, endurance super freak. I think in a lot of ways, you know, go for three hour runs outside of Crested Butte, you know, from like nine thousand feet to 14,000. He said when he, when he guided in the Himalayas that he'd do three 14ers in a day that he'd run up one, run down, run up the other, run down, run up to the third and sleep on the top to acclimatize. And I'm like, wow, awesome. That sounds great. <laughs> and really I was more of a sprinter. I mean, I was a, a ski racer and, and I raced wheelchairs, but I raced up to 800 meters really internationally. So that's not even two minutes. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty short and this is nine to 10 hours a day. So the training really was more of a callousing effect, just going out for long days and then coming back and then going out for another long day. We did the white rim trail in three days. So the full white rim trail, 103 miles or whatever it is in three days and, uh, you know, through the desert and all that stuff and everything. And so, so yeah, did, did a lot of, a lot of that stuff, just a lot of just keep going, just just finding a way to keep, you can stop whenever you want. You just have to get started again. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. How, how was it coming up with, how long did it kind of uh, take to create the, the, um, the bike that you used? How, 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 with the, with, it seemed like that took a lot of different iterations to kind of get the thing that, that ended up being what you used. Being the thing. Yes. The and thing. <laughs> we were, we were really lucky as you saw in the film, Mike Oxberger from, mm-hmm. uh, from one off titanium built, you know, he went from zero to a hundred. And then we went from like a hundred to 102 or something like that kind of thing. I mean, he, he developed the whole train. So, so it's a rear wheel drive vehicle mm-hmm. has a steering pad that you lay your chest on. So you can, so you can steer with your chest and keep pedaling as you're going. Uh, you know, not a recumbent, but actually having having the weight over over the over the back wheel, so you improve traction that way. And and yeah, so it we started with the three wheeled version. We went to a four wheeled version. Mike had actually built a prototype four wheeled version that we used that actually had that had sus- not suspension, but it would articulate. So each each wheel could move independently. Mm-hmm. So you could roll over rocks and get kind of that rock crawler kind of thing. Yeah. And we went and, and that's the one we brought when we went on the scouting trip in 2008, it was over 80 pounds. I mean, it was, wow. it was really, really heavy. And wow. so, so we, Dave and I would do a lot of hikes, Dave, Dave Penny and I, and, and we would talk and, you know, Hey, what do you think if we would do this or, and, you know, could we make it a little narrower? Could we move the wheels up? One of the things we did was we moved the wheels forward. So that basically the, the hub of the wheel is pretty much below my hip bones, right? Meaning that all of my weight is weight going is just in on the front there. Exactly. So it just mm-hmm. improved the traction immensely and we made it narrower, made it a little bit lighter is about 50 pounds, mm-hmm. uh, which is still, <laughs> that's heavy. a lot. Yeah, no, that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't super light and we were, we were really lucky. The Easton foundation uh, gave us, gave us a grant to, to develop the vehicle. So we were able to, to build a few prototypes and really make it work, which was, 
which was great. But a lot of that came from conversations that I had with Dave Penny. And Dave, in addition to being an endurance super freak, also was a bike mechanic in Crested Butte. Okay. When they were starting to build mountain bikes. And mountain gotcha. bikes were kind of like, you know, what if we put this wheel on that on that bike? Do you think we could do it? And I was like, I don't know. Let's see if we can do it. And so he was a, he took some test. He was like a, a master bike mechanic. You okay. Know, like, you know, like Camping Nolo or somebody like that had, had set up a test or something. I don't know who it was, but anyway, it was something like that. So, okay. so he had that ability to sort of think in 3D. And, right. and develop the bike and so yeah that's what we ended up doing and yeah we called one bomba which the orange one which which in swahili kind of means it's kind of like an exclamation it's like cool or like cooler than cool you know it's cooler like than cool talking and then they go bomba you know and then they say something else and i was like oh, okay that's that'll be the name of it and then the one that we used on the actual climb we put on these surly wheels that were four inches wide yeah they look pretty and beefy they were really beefy and we were running like three to five pounds of pressure or something like that. Okay. So the, the tire would just basically just, just, just encompass the whole, uh, any rock or anything. And so, so that one we called Kubwa, which in Swahili means huge. Kubwa. So you might've heard in the film when I'd stop Seki, our head, head African guide, I'd stop and he'd say, Kubwa, Kubwa. And that meant that somebody else, one of the underlings, had to go grab a gigantic rock and put it behind me so that I wouldn't roll back down the hill. Gotcha. Okay. Kubwa. No. <laughs> Kubwa. Yeah. Especially with the 50 extra pounds of that. I can't believe it was that heavy, even that last uh, iteration. I mean, that's still, that's a, that's a lot of weight to be uh, churning out all those, all those. So, so what gear, I mean, were you mostly just in, uh, what gears were you, did you have to rotate through? Was it kind of one or two gears or did they give you? Well, I mean, I had like a full 27 gears or whatever. Gotcha. And it was also, it was, it was then halved because we had two chains. Okay. So, so really it was, it was designed for climbing and mm-hmm. yeah, I was in probably like three gears the whole, you know how it is. You're climbing a hill and you're always like, <laughs> I'm going to save that one. I'm going to save that one in case I, in case I really need it. But I'm gonna, yeah, save one or two if you can. Try to stay in third gear instead of going all the way down to first and going, oh, no, I don't have anywhere to go. <laughs> so you go through and, uh, you know, one of the big things, one of the big takeaways for me in that documentary is just kind of the, the perseverance, right? And that metaphor for climbing that mountain and, and just through, I mean, the perseverance of, of life in general, right? You've had uh, such hard, and you've overcome such hardships and, and um, there are some in the film. And uh, it's, it's amazing that, you know, you've really seemed to, that, that perseverance has helped you uh, succeed and kind of uh, power through failure. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's probably the, I think it's probably the, the most important thing. And certainly, you know, it looks good from the film, you know, you, you don't, yeah, I, I feel more of the struggle than you probably felt. You know, oh, like, yeah, yeah. All of the moments, you know, it's like, oh, well, you persevered and it, and it worked. And it's like, kind of, you know, and then I, you know, you didn't see like after I landed at home and, and went, okay, we made it. And, 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 uh, and, and then I went, oh, wow, like we're, you know, I, I've the whole that that was it. I I was me. I didn't have the team anymore. I didn't have, uh, you know, we were we were in huge debt. I had to try to figure out how to get out of debt. And you know, so there's there's there is this sense of perseverance. And I think the metaphor for me in a lot of ways is is yes, we're all Sisyphus, right? We're all pushing that boulder up the hill. But the other part of it is that the top of that mountain is the bottom of the next mountain. And I, yeah, absolutely. And, and we're so oriented toward, you know, I'm so oriented toward, I, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to make you complicit in this in any way, <laughs> but I'm a so oriented toward, you know, if I make it there, all right, then we're cool. And you make it there and it's like, all right, well, you're starting over now. Mm-hmm. What's, what's next. And I think the perseverance and the, the releasing ourselves from this, uh, from this, oh, from this belief that, that we are, you know that we get to some place and it, and it, and it's all done and we've we we've made it make sense and it'll all get easier from here and it's like uh, you know it's just I was talking to a buddy of mine who's a who's a navy seal and he said at the at the seal training place that they have <coughs> excuse me that they have a sign that said uh, 
the only easy day is yesterday. Mm. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, that's kind of the, the way there is, is no finish line. <laughs> and I think that was the biggest thing for me was the, was the realization that there really is no finish line that it's mm-hmm. just, we just kind of keep going and, 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 and we have, you know, we have to enjoy that, enjoy the process. Yeah. And I think if absolutely. you look back on your career and for me, looking back on my career, in a lot of ways, the, the process is the stuff that I miss. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not as much the competition yeah. as it is the process and that process of like, yeah, we got in there and we really did something. Yeah. Like I miss those two a days and you're like, really, you miss the two a days? Like, are, are, is there something, you know, is there something wrong with you? And you're like, yeah. no, like that's when the real, that's when the metamorphosis happens. And I right. think that that's what we have to no, remember that- as we're moving forward. And that, that was the lesson. It was a big yeah. part of the lesson that the mountain taught me. Right. Yeah. I mean, there really is. And, and I would definitely agree with you in that, uh, looking back on, on my career and, and even now just those, those little days where you're exhausted and you get home and you just got a little bit better, you know, what it just not much, but just a little bit more and, and you're completely drained and totally exhausted, but you know, like, okay, things are, things are moving in the right direction and kind of that, that journey, right. Not, not the destination. It is. And I think that some of that is, it's harder to remember. You know, I think that Mm -hmm. sometimes even, especially like on the business side of things where it's like, well, what happened today? What happened that moved forward, which is, which is more of an expectation kind of goal. Yeah, of course. And it is a process goal, right? Like how did, what did you bring to the table today? And, and how did you, how did you push it forward? How did you improve your craft Mm -hmm. as opposed to what happened? Yeah. What, what would you say kind of has, has helped? Um, what's like a good daily habit for you that, that has really helped you kind of succeed and push through and in some of those everyday priorities that you you try to get done? It's, it is a good question. And it's, and and I think it's a, it's still a daily challenge. I, I, it's, it's the thing I wish I was better at. Mm -hmm. And, and we talk about like speaking, I am so profoundly proficient at procrastinating i guess the alliteration <laughs> is intended there but uh uh yeah i mean it's it's amazing like i just did you know we're in the middle of, of the whole coronavirus uh you know pandemic right now and and i did a i did a commencement address uh this past was it yesterday i think it might have been yesterday that i actually did it just to i just recorded one you know just just yeah. recorded it i had done one at middlebury back in 2011 and and I used some of that. It kind of thought I could use that and to sort of, sort of recreate it. And and I was like, ah, oh, but there's stuff I have to change. And 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 that took me because because this things are changing too, right? So it's not just the, it's not just doing the speech part of it. It's mm-hmm. how can I record this? How can I record it well enough? What do I need for equipment? How can I? And and all of those things that are going to go wrong. And I had so many different tries at it, and so. I think, I think a big part of it is, is one, taking the process, doing one of the things that I try to do, and, and I really want to get better at this, is, is have my to-do list done before, you know, the day before. So, so I do it for tomorrow, and okay. then it's not, what am I going to do? And, and really, you know, utilizing some of those tricks that, that work, the... Mm-hmm the getting into it quickly, you know, it's kind of like the speech, you know, it's kind of like running downhill, like, okay, this is the thing I have to do right now. And it's like, okay, now I've started creating momentum Mm -hmm. before I've realized and, and getting started is the, is the hardest part. It's easy enough just to, so, so those are meditation is a huge thing for me. Okay. Doing transcendental meditation for what is it? It's probably like three or four years or so now and just, you know, two twenty minutes and I don't always get to two twenty minutes a day, but sure. but I'm much happier and healthier okay. when I yeah, do. Yeah, you feel it. like it's it made a pretty big pretty big difference? I do. I do. Okay. I feel like it's made a difference in my health and I feel like it's made a difference just in in giving myself that twenty minutes because it's easy to it's easy to sort of plot along inefficiently. Sure. Yeah. And, and to take 20 minutes and say, okay, now I'm back and I'm better and I'm refreshed. And, and, and you learn a lot too. Yeah. So, so what do you, do you use like a meditation app? 
I don't. I, I don't? did. Okay. Uh, I went and studied uh, transcendental meditation. So okay. I went through a course, right. and and so that's that's what I do. I should probably I should probably go and do it again. You know, to sort of <laughs> Refresher. Connect. Yeah, exactly. Make sure I know what I'm talking about. But, uh, but yeah, it's something that I felt was really helpful. Awesome. Any uh, any books out there that you think would be a good uh, good pickup for uh, for people to kind of read and, and help with success? Uh, any any things kind of those nature? Just stuff that you're interested in at the moment. Uh, yes. So, uh, let me see if I can come up with his name. Uh, I think it's Martin Seligman, uh, learned optimism was something learned that optimism? I was, learned optimism. Yeah. Okay. Which was a great book. Uh, just in terms of, in terms of how, how, how we can, how it really is as much about this, this sense of we have the ability to react as we yeah. choose to, to react as well. Uh, but also sort of about the, you know, the scientific process as well of like, you know, of, of, uh, yeah. So I think that's a great one. Um, what else? Uh, yeah, I know I, you asked me this and I, I feel like I need to pitch my own books, you know, but I know you got a couple on there. Let's, uh, let's talk about them. I know one is a, is a children's book, right? Um, and it yeah. is, uh, what, uh, is it lonely to be a four leaf clover? Is it lonely to be a four leaf clover? So, I like the uh, title. I like the title. Thank you. So, <laughs> so it actually, it, it follows in some ways our name tags program. So it's a, uh, our name tags program uh, that we do for schools is about the labels that we put on ourselves and others, which are often our limitations. You know, I'm too, I'm too old. I'm too small. I'm too tired. I'm too poor. I'm too fat. I'm too, you know, we're like really good at the excuses and it's, uh, it's based on a resilience thing where our motto is, it's not what happens to you. It's what you do with what happens to you. And, in is it lonely to be a four-leaf clover it's about a four-leaf clover that hides what makes it different mm -hmm. which is ultimately what makes it great right because that fourth leaf stands for love for luck right so yeah love hope faith and luck mm -hmm. are are the four leaves and and, and it hides the fourth leaf because it wants to fit in with all the rest of the clovers and even though this is the thing that separates it that it's actually something good and then it meets a dandelion my wife's a big fan of dandelions and dandelion most assuredly does not does not hide it's, it's very disney <laughs> but it's a little scandalous uh, because they fall in love and the four-leaf clover becomes pregnant and the question is what's the baby going to look like uh, my wife is blonde and so so it's you know is it going to look sort of like elegant like a yellow tulip or fortified like a yellow rose and it ends up looking like all of us, you know, as, as bold and fierce as the dandelion, but as, as unique as the four leaf clover. Very so, cool. Yeah. So that's what I did. So there, so that's, so that's that. And, uh, and then the other one is, is, is uh, things I want to remember not to forget, which is based on my commencement address that I did at Middlebury that a friend of mine had read it and said, Oh, you should turn this into a book. And, I didn't do it the easy way, just taking the transcript and, and making that into a book. I actually went and, and sort of created some new anecdotes. And so it's all of 7,200 words, I think. But okay. it's, it's the things I want to remember not to forget because like you, you know, I mean, well, maybe not like you, but me, <laughs> I forget things that, yeah. that I've learned and then I have to learn them again. And I go, didn't I already know this? So, so it's a reminder <laughs> of the things that I want. And so, so we'll see. So yeah, so it's, it's kind of approaching graduation season right now. So that's usually my, my high season. So if anybody wants a graduation, yeah, present, good, great uh, graduation present and I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you do, uh, you do have to run. Um, like I said, I'm going to put uh, the link for the One Revolution documentary. Everybody out there, you really should check it out. You. Um, you can check out more for, from uh, Chris Waddell at uh, Chris Waddell Speaking, right? Exactly. Chris Waddell Speaking. Yep. Perfect. Yep. And uh, social media, is there anywhere anybody can follow you? Instagram, anything like that? So it's, uh, so it's Chris Waddell Living It on Instagram and there are underscores under each word there. So okay. it's Chris underscore Waddell underscore living it uh, underscore under each of them, uh, but, uh, or between each of them. Uh, and then Chris Waddell on Facebook. So it's just Chris Waddell. It's uh, so you can go to my page and like my page and follow me and find all this stuff. And then one revolution has a page as well. So you can follow one revolution and follow our name tags. We're on, there's a one revolution channel on on uh, on youtube which has the film but also has some of our name tags presentations as well so 
So yeah, any, any kids, any, any, yeah, anybody wants to go watch, please go watch. It's all free. Perfect. Yeah, no, uh, excited about it and excited, uh, hopefully for uh, living at the, the TV show and, and the podcast. So thanks a lot we'll for, uh, for Thank taking you. the time, Chris, and uh, hopefully love to have you on again uh, soon so we can talk some more about some name tags and some more success and stuff like that. So thanks for taking the time. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure. It. Thanks, bye. Yep. Bye, everybody. See ya. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thanks a lot for listening in. I really appreciate it. Please make sure to take the time to like, share, and subscribe our show. And also, you can follow along on Instagram. Thanks.